You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. back in 2 Corinthians this week, today. Let's open in prayer. Lord, we are grateful for this opportunity again to, to study your word and to hear from you. And Lord, as we think about it, it has effect and purpose in every day of our lives, every second of our lives. It's not something for just the weekend. And so, Lord, we look to you this morning for encouragement, for correction, for instruction, and for uh, uh, to worship you. We want to worship you by studying your word. Lord, we pray for safety for those around the region that are fighting fires. We pray for those fires to be summarily put out. And we thank you that your hand is over everything in our lives and in every life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're somewhere in the neighborhood of chapter 10, 3, verse 10. So let's go ahead and read um, all 18 verses of chapter 3 to get the at least local context. First, 2 Corinthians, chapter 3. <laughs> Say 1 Corinthians, but you know better. Just translate. Chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. <clears throat> but if the ministry of death in letters engraved in, of, in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the fate of Moses, face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, How shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. (laughs) So when we left off in verse 10, we were discussing that the Old Testament had 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 a glory. And glory indeed, because it provided... 
the timetable and the track to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in, in the Gospels, he said to the, to the two who were walking on the road to Emmaus, Oh, you foolish, don't you realize that, the, that those scriptures speak of me, the Old Testament? That's what he was talking about. They declare him. They declare the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the glory of the Old Testament, indeed it had some, was nothing. It paled in comparison to the glory of the New Testament, wherein the fulfillment of all that was necessary to, to make men right with God has happened. <clears throat> so he said, if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. That was verse 9. And where we left off, <clears throat> verse 10, actually we left off in verse 9. And the word abound, and we'll, we'll kind of start with this. That was my mini introduction, but we'll start with this. The word abound means to superabound, to overabound, to be more than enough, to, 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 to take a drink from a fire hydrant is basically what it's talking about. <laughs> that's the kind of glory that's come with the New Testament. And so verse 10 says, uh, taking following on that same track, for indeed what had glory, in this case has no glory, because of the glory that surpasses it. It's a, it's a comparison Paul is making. Compared to this, this is nothing. So compared to a million, compared to a trillion dollars, a million dollars is nothing. Really? <laughs> you have to work for the government to be able to say stuff like that. But anyway, that's what Paul is saying here. The old covenant had glory, but compared to the new covenant, it has none. That's the difference in surpassing glory that the Lord Jesus Christ has to the sacrifice of bulls and rams and heave offerings and wave offerings and all of the things that were necessary to remind the Israelites of their inability to live a life that would result in heaven. <clears throat> when there was judgment, where there was judgment, now there is salvation. The New Testament, glory of the New Testament surpasses the glory of the Old Testament in remarkable ways. Where there was judgment, now there is salvation. Where there was condemnation, now there is justification. Where there was death, now there is life. The New Testament brings life. That's not to say that there was no life to understanding and believing Jews in the Old Testament. But they understood that what was important, what was going to consummate the what was going to be the consummation of the ages working up to that which would actually redeem men was coming in their Messiah, and it was predicted. Verse 11, For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. The new covenant, <clears throat> now get this, the new covenant will never, ever fade, nor ever be replaced. When he said it is finished on the cross, he meant it. It is finished. All that was necessary for the redemption of man and for the <coughs> consummation of the ages was done on the cross. The old covenant had its place, and indeed the moral law continues, but that which was for setting aside the Jews as the people of God has been surpassed and replaced by the gospel, which makes everyone who trusts Christ a child of God. There is now no need, no need for the ritual exercises nor decrees that were designed to separate Israel from the other nations to be practiced by Christians as we have been set apart by the new covenant work by the Lord Jesus Christ. The work that he did sets us apart. We don't have to avoid the certain foods um, unless they're tainted with mercury. I would recommend that you avoid them anyway. But for the ritualistic reasons that were designed to set Jews apart from the nation around the nations around them, that is done. Christ has consummated that. He sets us apart. 
His work sets us apart. <clears throat> Every offering that was required in the Old Testament or that was voluntary has been satisfied by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sin offering, a mandatory sacrifice which was offered to atone for sin and to cleanse from defilement was fully accomplished by Christ's sacrifice. No more offering is necessary. The mandatory trespass offering which was to atone for unintentional sin was also fully accomplished by Christ's sacrifice. No more trespass offering is necessary to come into the presence of God. It has all been accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. The voluntary burnt offering, which was an act of worship and designed to express devotion or commitment to God, is unnecessary as our salvation is accomplished, which is accomplished by God himself, is that very act of devotion and commitment to God. That salvation itself was bought and paid for by Christ at the cross. The voluntary grain offering, which was often accompanied by the drink offering, was to express thanksgiving in recognition of God's provision and unmerited goodwill toward the person making the sacrifice. This has been accomplished by the work of Christ as well. And we enter into it every time we praise God, thanking him for his completely sovereign and unmerited gracious work in our lives. Christ himself was the drink offering. Even as Paul spoke of his readiness to be poured out at Second, out at Second Timothy chapter four, verse six. Done. Accomplished by Christ. We pour ourselves out in Him as we by the Spirit obey Him in our lives. The peace offering, which was also a voluntary sacrifice offering of thanksgiving and fellowship, was also accomplished by Christ on the cross when He made it possible for us to have fellowship with God the Father Himself. We maintain that fellowship by frequent confession of sin as given to us in 1 John 1, 9. This indeed is glorious in a way that the Old Testament could never be. All of the ceremonial requirements are set aside, uh, th that were set aside as a nation that, that resulted in setting Israel aside as a nation have been accomplished by the work of Christ once for all on the cross so that his sheep are perfectly set apart by his work. Obedience to the moral law, that which is encapsulated in the Ten Commandments, is made possible in the lives of believers by the work of the Spirit through grace. Glory indeed. Yes? Are you going to address all why then there's going to be a new temple and new sacrifices and all that? I hadn't contemplated that this morning. <laughs> you on recritter, you? No, it's a good question. It's a good question. I'll actually write that down. New temple, new sacrifices. I'm going to write it in pencil, though, so it might fade away. Okay. And so it is that, through the Christ that though the Christian has been freed from the condemnation of the law, he's not been freed from the obligation to God's moral law. That which God has said is holy is holy. And... That is why after salvation, it's like the conscience kicks into overdrive. That's not a really good metaphor, but that's what came to mind. Uh, things that didn't used to give us much, pray, uh, much pause or, or concern now cause great internal consternation. When it is brought to our attention that we have done something wrong, it becomes an obsession, if you will, for us to make it right. This is not what the world does, but it is what a Christian does and should do. Thanks be to God, the Holy Spirit who lives within us, who is able by his grace to help us day by day as we are sanctified in Christ, obey the moral law of God. And this brings great joy. That is why the psalmist could say in Psalm 119.97, O 
Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And so, the day-by-day -day obedience of a Christian... <clears throat> i got to make sure I word this right. The day-by-day -day obedience of a Christian to God's moral law and is an outworking of love as a response to the incredible gift of the unmerited salvation God has provided. It is not a workload designed to earn salvation. This can never be because the New Testament and the Old Testament fully teach salvation cannot be earned. It is a gift appropriated by the gift of faith that God gives us at regeneration. All of Hebrews chapter 11 gives testimony to this, that the men of old gained approval by God, to God, through faith. That's a good study, to, a good study companion to this section here. The approval that God gives is the approval to his son, which is imputed to us. And it's, it's appropriated by faith. By faith, all of those people in, in, in the Old Testament, it talks about them in Hebrews chapter 11, were made right before God by faith. Any questions except for Peter? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Any questions at all? Okay. Verse 12. No, really, I welcome the questions it, because it, it's one of the things that keeps me in the word, and I appreciate it. <clears throat> Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. I would posit that today there's more timidity in the pulpit than I can believe. There is less concern about the reputation of God and more concern about my standing in the community. There's less concern about the truth of the gospel and more concern about being light. And it's killing the church's testimony. Now, thanks be to God that he is responsible for the, re the reach of the church and it will never be that the church will lose all of its testimony, but let's not be a part of sacrificing that testimony because we want people to like us. Whatever we have to say that is difficult to say, let us meditate and think about the best way to say it as kindly as you can possibly say it. But if you're going to call homosexuality a sin, you have to call it a sin. If you're going to call adultery a sin, you have to call it I'm not, I'm not good at thesaurus work right in front of people, but, you know, and a mistake? Brokenness. brokenness. Yeah, we're broken, but we're broken because of sin. Because of sin. I'm not making one sin worse than the other. All of them prevent someone from coming into the presence of God. But to avoid... Speaking with the boldness that Paul is talking about here does more damage than can be imagined. The gospel divides. It divides. It also unites. But first, sometimes it has to divide. It has to divide goats from sheep. It has to divide false from true. It has to divide hate from love. It has to divide negative from true positive. And I'm not talking about the power of positive speaking. This hope... The hope of the new covenant, which accomplishes what the old covenant could not, that is, the salvation of the soul, gives hope. It gave hope to the men of old who looked past and into the future through the scripture, knowing that the time was coming when their faith would be made perfect. It gives hope to those of us who live now, just as Paul averred that it should be giving hope to the Corinthians. That hope gave him great boldness, because as you know, when you're certain of something, 
absolutely certain. It gives a certain firmness in your embrace and exposition of it. The Judaizers had no hope. They lived in the Old Testament, and they tried to get Paul's Corinthian converts to revert to the less glorious method, and they even had that method wrong. There was no faith in their teaching, just work. There was no hope in their teaching, just death and condemnation. The boldness that Paul speaks of here evinces an unwillingness to be secretive or to hold back. Anytime someone preaches the gospel that has one meaning for the elite and another for the workaday, it is a false gospel. It means the same thing to everyone. And to try to change that meaning for one group or to alter it is the work of a false teacher, a false prophet. There is nothing that need be held back, although we should be careful in our presentation to avoid offense as long as we realize that the gospel itself will offend. We should do what we can to minimize personal offense while we declare openly what the scripture has said. False religions and cults conceal much. Often, as in the Gnostic cults of the Greek era, its propagators would hold up one version for the masses and while withholding what they considered difficult truths from them. Paul exulted in the truth of the gospel, and he declared it openly and boldly, withholding nothing. In, in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, he said, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. And in 2027, For I did not shrink from declaring you the whole purpose of God. People who conceal parts of their teaching are liars. They're false teachers. And most of the cults, if not all of them, have special teachings. I remember uh, in 1840s when Joseph Smith did his staircase promulgation of the Adam God prophecy. There was many, many Mormons you talk to won't believe that. He taught that Adam was a god and that he became the god of this planet. And it's and uh, later on it was propagated by Brigham Young as well. But the 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 um, that particular speech was taken down by thirteen Mormon scribes. Um, they all knew about it. When you talk to some workaday Mormons today about that, they don't they don't. Some of them get it, but many of them don't. Those are secrets that were withheld from the workaday because only the elite could understand and embrace them. In his commentary on Second Corinthians, Charles Hodge said this about the Christian gospel. And you may see it up in the front up there, or you may see something that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Give me just a second here to work this thing over. Charles Hodge said, this indeed is one of the glories of Christianity. It is characteristic of error to practice reserve and to seek concealment. In all the religions of antiquity, there was an esoteric, that's a hidden, and an exoteric, that's an open meaning. Doctrine, and one for the people and the other for the initiated. They all had mysteries carefully concealed from the public eye. So in the Romish church, just, as in, just in proportion as it is infected with the spirit of heathenism, the doctrine of reserve is avowed and practiced. The gospel is not preached with openness so that all may understand. The people are kept in ignorance. They are told they need not know that faith without, that faith without knowledge, a blind confidence in rights which they do not understand, is all sufficient. But if a man in the church has the conviction that the gospel is of God, that it is unspeakably glorious, adapted to all, and needed by all in order to salvation, then the word will be preached openly and without reserve. That's a good quote. 
with op it will be preached openly and without reserve. And so sometimes we go from a sermon offended. Good on you. What do you do with that offense? If you go straight to 1 John 1, 9, when you realize you've been the wrong one and ask for forgiveness, then the sermon had its proper effect. The sermon will, God will use his word to proper effect always. But it's unfortunate that so many have tried to adapt their message to the audience they have. Now, there's a proper adaptation. I'm not going to speak in Cyrillic. All right? That's not a language. That's an that's a, that's a alphabet, right? So I already blew it. I'm not going to speak in Russian. Ooh, the Russian collusion thing. I'm going to speak in English. So if, if, a, if, a, if a message is given in Latin, how many people are going to miss that today? I took two years of Latin and got A's in it. But I think I just was marking time. <laughs> It was also a long time ago. I don't think I would understand a message given in Latin. I might get two or three phrases and some of the words. Peter. Oh, you bet. Does that apply to speaking in tongues? Yes. Tongues had its time, had its purpose at the time, authenticating the message of God in the apostolic era. But the tongues, it's unfortunate that the word was translated in the King James tongues. The word is actually languages. And it meant the uh, propagation and the use of a language unfamiliar to the, to the owner of the speech or the, to the maker of the speech for the purposes of God, for establishing the church at the time. And we can see in, at the end of the, uh, probably around the end of 80 or 90 AD, it was gone. It was gone. It served its purpose. It served its purpose in authenticating the message, <laughs> that language ability, and it was done. So today... Speak in the language of your hearers, but also speak, you know, make sure that you're careful to maintain the culture and the ability for them to understand everything you're saying. But don't hide the truths of the gospel. Don't shrink from declaring the difficult as well as, if you will, the fun. So there is never a time when bold preaching of the gospel and exposition of scripture is not needed. Today, however, it seems that many are running from it. The word of God will always confront the world. It will always confront the world. It will always confront us. It will always bless us. It will always encourage us. It will always instruct us. It will always make us ready for more. That's what the word of God does. It's, it's, it's not magic. It's God's word. <clears throat> it will always call out sin and then here's what I have, whether it is homosexuality, theft, idolatry, immorality, jealousy, strife, anger, or any of the sins that beset mankind. Every one of them and all of them separate us from God. None is worse than the other, although some have a more damaging effect on lives here and now. This is not the time to shrink from the full message of the gospel. It is rather a time to be grateful that God in his great kindness was willing to reveal to us everything that was necessary for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. And that includes correcting us. Do you like to be corrected? Do you just say, all right, I was wrong again. I love being wrong. I got to get some more knee pads. No, maybe not. But God in his great love spends every, here I'm anthropomorphizing it again, every waking time he has to make sure that we are brought into conformity to the life of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that was done at the cross, and then day by day as we are sanctified. And how is it done? It's done by the Scripture. It's done by the Scripture. Any other comments or questions? Verse 13, and then Paul says, And we're not like Moses, and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. So it was in the old covenant that much was mystery and hidden, just as Moses' face had to be veiled to obscure the glory that was the glory that was frightening the Israelites. So God worked by degrees to reveal more of himself throughout history. He didn't hide anything. It was in the scripture. But it's kind of like, I think the people who are actually in the end times will understand Revelation in a way we don't. Because that's how the word of God is written. Have there been sections of the word that you've read? Uh, most of you have been Christians in here for a long time. You've read, and they were good, and, and years later you read the same thing, and God used that section to convict you? What changed? The word didn't change. The need for the word to con correct and confront you changed. And so God used it. All scripture is profitable. But it is the scripture he's using on you that will be your prophet that day. Prophet with a F. So, so it was in the old covenant that much was mystery. So 1 Peter, verse 1, verse chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, 10 through 12, he says this, 1 Peter says this, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. He's talking to the Corinthians. He's talking to us. In these things which have now, now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things, in which angel, things into which angels long to look. Much of what happened in the Old Testament that was not understood was revealed in the New Testament. Some of the mysteries that were not made clear in the Old Testament include the partial and temporary hardening of Israel. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Secondly, the gospel message of salvation itself, Romans 16, 25 and 26. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. And 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The cross would have not happened. Ephesians 6.19. And pray, Paul says, on my behalf, that the, that utterance may be given to me in op the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. 1 Timothy 3.16 By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And the final unity of Jews and Gentiles in the church. 
Ephesians chapter 3, 3 and 4. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Ephesians 3, 9. And to bring to light what is, in, what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. And then finally the rapture of the church. First, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 15, 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. It's not on the page up there. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And then the union of Christ in the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference, he talks about in that section, of Christ and the church. The truth that Jesus is God incarnate. Colossians 2, 2 and 3. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in Colossians 2, 9, for in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Next would be the full revelation of lawlessness in the end times. For the mystery of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.7 is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The New Testament takes much of what was vague in the Old Testament and fleshes it out, making it understandable. It was not Moses' fault that the Israelites did not hear this. Their hearts were hardened and remained hardened until this day, said Paul. And even today, unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles' hearts are hardened. Hardened hearts come from sin, stubbornness, and pride. People will not be saved because they believe they must have a, have a part of salvation. They must, they must be part of it. That is the sin of pride among others. People will not bow to the sovereign God of the universe. Again, pride and stubbornness. The Israelites missed much of what God was saying because the veil over their hearts, the veil was a making of their hard hearts, their own hard hearts. Just as, the, I mean, really, could Pharaoh not see what was happening? 40 quintillion flies, animals dying everywhere, lightning and thunder, darkness in the daylight. He just hardened his heart, pride and stubbornness. He could see what was happening. There was no veil over his eyes. He put the veil over his eyes. He thought he could withstand the sovereign God of the universe. Big mistake. The Israelites missed much because of the veil over their hearts. There were exceptions. The prophets and many of the great people of old, such as Hannah, Abraham, Joshua, Samuel, Boaz, Esther, and others. The Old Testament dispensation, in the Old Testament dispensation, but in the New Testament times, there were those such as Zacharias and Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, and others. Members of the believing remnant who had not stiffened their necks and were able to hear God's call. Stephen summed it up in Acts chapter 7. He said this, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. D did he hold back? These guys were going to kill him. You have become the murderers. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. This is the boldness Paul was talking about. 
And this is the hardness that he's talking about. The people that stoned Stephen, you read that whole chapter, he basically preached the whole gospel to them. And then they killed him. So Paul did not withhold his boldness of speech. He was unwilling to. Neither did Stephen. But it's the hardness of hearts that hides the truth from people. It isn't an obscure scripture. The mysteries are mysteries because people will not hear them. And so today, even today, all throughout history, when you preach, when you speak the gospel to people, why don't they hear it? God hasn't regenerated them. We don't know if they're sheep or goats. Keep preaching. But the hardness of their hearts, their pride, their stubbornness, our pride, our stubbornness prevented us from hearing it until the time that God decided. Our pride, not some mistake in the word, not some inability of humans to comprehend it, our pride, our stubbornness, our unwillingness to hear it. And then we'll finish with this. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. The, Paul preached in all these synagogues. The veil was still there. The veil was still covering their hearts, covering their eyes, covering their ears. See no truth, hear no truth, pay attention to no truth, or whatever the monkeys say. What the hardened heart that remains in those who do not believe is that way because of pride. One commentator characterized it as intellectual darkness. That's a good phrase. Those who will not believe in the creation account are guilty or are victimized. Nah, they're guilty of intellectual darkness. Those who will not believe the work of Christ on the cross have intellectual darkness. They also have spiritual darkness. I'm not going to minimize that. But <laughs> they're some, so, you ever heard some people are just too smart for their own good? Maybe so. This is always the result. This, this uh, John MacArthur said this. Always the result of refusing and suppressing the revelation of divine truth. A veil of intellectual darkness hides the glory which has been deliberately rejected. And so in Paul's day and today, the Jews and other unbelievers will react improperly to a reading of the Old Testament. Some will believe that the law must still be kept to satisfy God and earn heaven. Others who don't believe any of it will make a mishmash in order to satisfy a scarred conscience. These are people with a moral blindness who want to sanction their own behavior, and so they must dismiss the Old Covenant almost entirely, or entirely. It's ironic that the New Covenant always also deals with the sin that unbelievers delightedly occupy themselves with. In the New Covenant, it takes, the New Covenant takes it to another step. Where the Old Covenant said we are not to murder, the New Covenant will not countenance hatred. For hatred is the precursor to murder. The Old Covenant condemned adultery. The New Covenant reminds us that adultery is preceded by lust, and therefore the lust is just as bad. The fact that his fellow Jews rejected Christ did not please Paul. It caused him great heartache that they refused to see the Messiah. Those whom the work of Christ has removed the veil from see him, the risen Lord, in all his glory and gladly bend the knee. Do you not gladly bend your knee to Christ, figuratively and even sometimes physically? When Moses went into God's presence to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. This gave him a clearer view of God's glory, at least the glory he was able to look at. And so, sinners who turn to Christ have their veil removed, and they can see the risen Savior as who he is, the Son of God, the Son of glory, the only way to God. There is no other way among men 
to achieve heaven. I'm getting this one mixed up. <laughs> I had it this morning. Peter said in Acts that there's no other way to come to God except through Christ Jesus. There's not the power of positive thinking. There's not your best life now. There's not any of these other silly and perverse methods. There is no methodology. It is the, is the work of Christ on the cross. That is the only way. And we'll finish, as I said, with this, verse 16. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, Paul says, the veil is taken away. Moses doesn't have to remove it. God takes it away. This is, in fact, the practical result, the practical result of a heart that has been regenerated and the sheep that has been given the faith to believe. The veil that prevented them from seeing Christ in the first place, as he truly is, is removed. Do you remember what you thought? Some of us have been Christians long enough that don't, we don't really maybe have a clear memory of the stupidity we believed before we came to Christ. But before we came, I mean, I remember in college <coughs> actually agreeing with uh, my biology teacher on the theory of evolution. I was, I was a professing Christian. I say professing advisedly. Um, and I look back on some of the things I used to believe about, about human relationships and about, about antiquity and about uh, evolution and those kinds of things. And I just go, how dumb can a person really be and still be able to feed himself? I was there, and I'm sure some of you remember too, before you were, before you were saved, the veil that, that remained and you couldn't see the truths that Scripture has revealed. And it's not a mystery that we, the elite, get to see. It's whoever the Lord decides. And all, the ground of the, at, the, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. <clears throat> now it is gone, that veil is gone, and the Bible takes on a whole new meaning. Nothing has changed in the scripture, but the believer's heart has been changed. And now the Holy Spirit has worked the work necessary for regeneration, and he can begin the work of day-by-day -day sanctification, step-by-step, -step, turning one from an old way to a new way, walking in step with the Savior. They've been changed. The Holy Spirit can do his work it, using the word in, in our lives, in their lives, the Corinthians' lives, to help them become sanctified, as I said, day by day, step by step, as we walk with the Lord. And so that is the practical result of the veil being lifted. It's not just that you become aware of how the great sweep of history has been pointing to Christ since time immemorial. It's not just that you begin to see the interconnection between the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures. It's that your life changes. You're not who you were anymore. The old things have passed away. Everything has become new. Not some things. You, you still have bunions, and your hair still receding, and, and your knees still hurt, but what is inside the, the inner man, the inner woman, has become new, all new. I, I, I can't get over that, because I was a jerk. Still am, in many ways. Still working on it, sanctifying. But I think back, I remember... Oh, this is on tape, so it won't be, it won't stay here. <laughs> so I'm not going to talk about that. But if everyone, if one of you want to hear me about me, how I used to dress at Southside when I first started coming there, do you guys remember? Oh, please, be kind. We think differently now. And so Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to recognize that. All through the things that he's encouraging them to do. Forgive that sinner. 
stop doing the, the, the marriage things that they've been doing. And it looks like there's been pretty good success, remember? He's seeing the, the later on in chapter 7, we'll see the Titus brings, Titus brings him a good report. The work of the Holy Spirit on believers in Corinth has been coming apace. It has been happening. They have been changing, even the Corinthian church. Any questions before we, before we pray? Even Peter. I'm sorry, I shouldn't tease you like that. You're just, that's okay. I like your questions. They're good questions. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, we know not why you chose us when you decided that we would be one of your sheep, but it was done in time immemorial. And then when the time was right, someone brought your blessed word to us and the veil was lifted. And we began to see the Lord Jesus Christ for who he truly is, the Son of God, the Savior of all who will believe in him. And so, Lord, we trust today that you will continue to work that through us as we bring the word of God to the, those around us, to the world in our little area. And, Lord, we, we thank you that your work continues apace in our lives, sanctifying us day by day, removing the, the dead branches and refreshing those that have become subservient to you. We ask you, Lord, today as we have studied your word that you would make it applicable to our lives even today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.